The Water Values Podcast, Session 30. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. We've got a great guest as always for you today, but before we get to the interview, just wanted to remind you to listen all the way to the end of the podcast for the all-important disclaimer, lest you rely on the information in this podcast to your material disadvantage. Also, again, for those of you who are not signed up for the newsletter, I just wanted to let you know that I'll be attending the National Association of Water Companies Water Summit in Fort Lauderdale on October 6th and 7th, where I'll be moderating a panel on the Safe Drinking Water Act. Uh, I'll also be attending the Global Water Intelligence American Water Summit in Houston on October 23rd and 24th. These are both great conferences, and if you'll be there, please let me know. I'd love to meet up with you. On today's podcast, we've got an interview with Margaret Palmer. She directs the Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center and is a professor at the University of Maryland. She does a great job explaining how the center she directs approaches environmental problems, including water problems, from an interdisciplinary approach with multiple perspectives in order to achieve attainable environmental solutions. It's really a unique approach. And she also talks about a lot about her efforts to protect streams and repairing habitat from the effects of mountaintop removal coal mining. She does a great job describing her activities, and I wish we had more time to speak with her because her work is really fascinating, and we we're really only able to scratch the surface of all of her experience in the water world. Perhaps we'll get to that in the future. Well, with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Margaret, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. Um, to start off, could you please tell us a little about uh, your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Well, it really began when I was in college, and I took an invertebrate zoology class, and I fell in love with just learning about invertebrates, many of which, of course, are aquatic. Now, there's also a lot of terrestrial insects, but <laughs> I became interested from that class and went on to graduate school in oceanography, um, but really made the transition to freshwater systems largely because in, in my graduate work, I had worked with an ecologist and a boundary layer physicist looking at um, the relationship between small animals that live on the bottom of the ocean floor and flow dynamics. And I began reading that in streams, there was a great deal of work done really on a related topic, that is the downstream drift or passive um, sort of floating up in the water of small uh, stream insects. And so I tried to apply some of the marine theory in a freshwater setting and I just never went back. I fell in love with the study of streams and watersheds and what controls the flows in and out of those streams. Um, so, you know, I guess it's a little bit of a life of life as an improvisation. Things happen, you get interested, <laughs> and you move forward. <laughs> yeah, life's how Plan B works out, right? So, um, That's right. <laughs> uh, you know, that struck me about applying the ocean thought process paradigm to inland streams and rivers uh, because one is obviously saltwater and one is freshwater. Can you talk uh, about what elements of that relationship really grabbed your attention? Sure. Well, really, it relates.
relates much more to fluid dynamics and, and water flow and water movement, which is what I had been studying. Um, that is, I was sort of became an expert in the, the forces that are exerted on um, the ocean floor due to movement of water. And really, in oceanography, there's a very long tradition of interdisciplinary work. So, for example, it wasn't really odd for me to be working, having an advisor that was an ecologist and one that was a, a boundary layer physicist, which means flows at the boundary of, of two things, in this case, the water and the sediments. And what I learned when I began reading some of the stream literature is that there had not been such a strong tradition at that time of this kind of interdisciplinary work. And it struck me that, that at that time, some of the work being done was not as sophisticated in terms of looking at the relationship between fluid flows in streams and things like dispersal of small stream organisms and what controls their populations um, as it is was in marine systems. And so that's really what made me start dabbling in those systems is saying I think some of the exact same theories we use um, in marine systems, there's no reason they wouldn't apply in freshwater systems, like what's the relationship between boundary layer shear stress, which is essentially a, a, the force tangential to the bottom of um, a boundary to hear the stream bed. What's the relationship between that force and the abundance of small organisms in the water? Um, is it related or are they actively swimming up into the water to disperse? So those were the kinds of things, again, that, that um, were very similar between the two types of systems. Hmm, really, really interesting stuff. So one of the things that you've been very heavily involved in is the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what it does? Sure. Well, do you want me to talk about how I became involved, how I sort of ended up on this path? Yeah, that'd be great. Sure. So when I um, was working, you know, my early work in streams in the particularly, you know, late 80s, early 90s, um, I found at that time I was at the University of Maryland and I was having to drive further and further from the university, sometimes hours, to find streams that were what an ecologist at that time would call undisturbed or semi-pristine. Um, so not in fact a uh, not impacted by lots of development, for example. And because of that, I began to ask myself, you know, I wonder if we can fix some of these streams that are highly degraded, which got me interested in how streams potentially could be restored. Now, this may sound like a long-winded way of getting to my interest in the Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center, but but basically, it was a direct path because what I found after many years of working on stream restoration research is that really a great deal of the science was never used, that, it, that what was being done to restore streams and rivers and actually a lot of ecosystems is much more driven by political and social dynamics than it is by science. So I began to recognize that you couldn't understand things like restoration if you 
focused on it only from an ecological perspective. That it, it really is in a class of problems that are often characterized as wicked problems, and those are problems for which the term has been around for a long time, but those are problems for which um, multiple constituencies and different people have very different views on how to go about solving the problem and even whether or not it is a problem. So there's no single answer. I, I sometimes talk about wicked problems, which are, are almost all environmental problems are. There's a distribution of solutions and you have to understand the interplay between social dynamics like economics, politics, behavior, and the environment to really begin to solve them. And so um, back in, oh, let's see, it must have been about 2009 or so, or 2010, the National Science Foundation put out a call for proposals to create an environmental synthesis center. And my view was that it really made a lot more sense to create a socio-environmental synthesis center. Um, if the center, if NSF wanted the center to really focus on solving environmental problems, I really felt strongly that couldn't be done without doing research jointly between social scientists and environmental scientists. So I proposed such a center, along other people proposed different types of centers, and anyway, we won the competition. So now um, I'm directing this center and um, doesn't fund my own research. Mostly we fund the work of, um, or we do fund the work of other scholars from all over the world uh, to work in highly interdisciplinary teams focused specifically on a problem that can be solved using existing data, theories, or, or uh, novel approaches um, so, so, and require these interdisciplinary teams, so perspectives from, for example, um, sociology, economics, and ecology. And uh, so a lot of the work is highly computational. Sometimes the teams will bring together data from a variety of regions around the world or from multiple disciplines to pull that together in a synthetic or integrative way to address a specific question. So it's a different kind of science in that we make really good use of creativity by people, new ways of thinking about things, um, existing data, mathematical models. Um, and part of the idea is that field ex and laboratory experiments are really important but we don't have time to wait for the, the, the uh, time it takes to do all of the work we might do if we started from scratch collecting data. There's actually a huge amount of information and knowledge in people's brains that can be harnessed to um, try and identify actionable um, steps to take to solve problems by combining, again, that really rich source of, of knowledge from a lot of disciplines as well as um, the stakeholders that, that are interested in the possible solutions to a problem. So it could be an agency, it could be a international conservation group, it could be um, 
uh, businesses. Um, so often we get those stakeholders involved in helping to form the research questions very specifically so that the kinds of outcomes are actually things that are relevant to new policies or new practices or things that, that can be put in place. So it's a pretty exciting place, and it really, for me personally, it was this sort of path from my own experiences in, um, and the evolution of my own research career that, that led me to get so interested in this type of approach. Yeah, well, it's, it sounds like it's a very uh, liberal arts type approach. You're, you're taking all these different perspectives and trying to solve, solve problems. What... What are some of the examples? What are some examples of problems that your your, your center is undertaking and trying to solve? Sure. Well, I'll give, give you a couple of examples. So, so one one research team, and we have about seventy research teams funded from all over the world who come here for periods of four days to a week, multiple times over up to three years. So they don't just solve it, you know, with one meeting. Um, so some examples would include we have a team that, that just finished doing really interesting work looking at um, how cities all over the world get their water, where the water comes from, and beginning to look at how sustainable that is. And they did put together a large amount of data on that and published a very interesting paper recently. We have a group that is interested in how um, um, Reserves, such as a biodiversity reserve, but it could be multiple types of reserves, set-aside areas, particularly in developing countries, the extent to which those actually result in environmental benefits and in benefits or negative impacts to the local people. So many of these regions, for example, a forest reserve in Africa, um, it may be put in an area that the local people actually rely on for food, for gathering food and so forth. And so there's the potential that there can be negative consequences if the management, the governance structure that is used to manage that reserve isn't done in such a way that it's compatible with meeting human needs while um, taking care of the environment. So that's an interesting project. Um, we have a group that's looking at um, they call it How Business Speaks Biodiversity, and that brought together business leaders, specialists in biodiversity, conservation biologists, and scholars from business schools to begin to ask, you know, how can we provide tools and information that businesses could actually use to begin understanding their impacts on biodiversity due to their practices, um, how they ship material, you know, their supply chain, et cetera. Um, let's see, what else? We have a project looking at um, the risk to humans of toxic releases, both in the air and in water, and it's a highly detailed in terms of the spatial scale. It's a very fine resolution. Um, project that, that can estimate highly quantitatively the risk from um, permitted releases throughout the United States and how that relates to 
both socioeconomic status and ethnicity. And what's interesting about this, while it is focusing on the issue of environmental justice, it's fairly well known that the risk is generally higher for minorities, people of color in the U.S., and also lower socioeconomic. The team has a longitudinal data set that's at least somewhere between 22 and 25 years in length. And so they can actually begin to ask questions that haven't been addressed before, such as, you know, which came first? Do we see these industries moving into areas which are disadvantaged already? Do we see instead that um, that um, we get sort of the reverse scenario that the the you know industry is there and it starts to you know bring down the community and when different policies were put in place, so for example, when the Clean Air Act went into place and some exemptions were provided to um, facilities that were already operating, did that result in enhanced risk specifically for that community? So having that longitudinal data is pretty unique. Um, and that involved getting computer scientists who work on visualization of results and hot, it's intensively, um, it's very intensive computationally because there's terabytes of data. Computer scientists with environmental sociologists um, looking at that particular problem. So it's a really interesting mix of projects. We have one by economists working with psychologists. Um, a few days ago, we had a group of behavioral economists in asking, can we begin to think about turning around environmental degradation in a particular area by changing behaviors? And where are the leverages for that? What, what do we know from research that's been done on trying to change behaviors? Um, so I think that gives you sort of a flavor. It's really diverse. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like you, you certainly got a wide range of projects going on there. Uh, let's let's pivot a little bit and talk about something you're very well known for, and that is mountaintop coal, mountaintop removal coal mining, and its impact on water quality and streams. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you got involved uh, in in that niche area? Sure. So I was sitting in my office one day back in, it must have been, it was either 2004 or 2005, and I got a call from someone who wanted to talk to me about restoration. And, it, and it's not unusual to get such calls, typically from watershed associations, for example, that want advice. This one was unusual because she was calling from a nonprofit in West Virginia. She was a, a legal researcher who said that she had um, a situation where restoration of streams were being done to compensate for impacts um, being impacts on streams from mining in the Appalachian region. She was interested in having me take a look at how, how the restoration projects were being done to compensate for impacts to streams from mining in the Appalachians. And, um, you know, I get a lot of these calls, usually they're from watershed groups. But anyway, I said, well, tell me a little bit more. And when she told me what they were doing, I was so surprised. She said, well, they're creating streams. And I said, what? <laughs> she 
said, yeah, they're creating streams after they finish the mining, and they're getting full credit for compensating for the impacts. And again, I was hesitant because I was too busy to get, I was hesitant to get involved. And she said, well, how about you just come and we fly you here to Charleston, West Virginia for one day, and we've got a group, a nonprofit, that donates their time in flying helicopters to let you just tour the area for an hour to see what it looks like and, and see if there's any way, you know, we could just chat with you briefly. And I said, okay, I can take one day. So I went down, and what I found is that it totally shocked me. My husband and I have a cabin in West Virginia. In fact, we're going this weekend um, on a river. And for me, it's in the where our place is in the northeastern part of the state. To me, West Virginia is just rich, beautiful forests. It's really high biodiversity. And I expected to see that along with little patches of mine sites. And what I saw actually was exactly the opposite. Huge, vast areas of just decimated land with no trees, with little patches of trees. And so I felt like I had to look into this and get involved and figure this out. And in fact, then I did start reading some of the proposals for their restoration for mitigation, and they were taking drainage ditches on mine sites after the mining was finished, and for example, putting rocks and boulders in those ditches that were similar to sizes in natural streams, and calling those creative streams. <laughs> uh, needless to say, at, these were all mountaintop mine sites, and once you blow up the top of the mountain and thrust that overburden into the valley, which buries streams, destroys them, the hydrology's totally changed, and those drainage ditches do little more than drain water off the top of the highly impervious, flattened mountain after mining. So I became involved in helping this nonprofit, the Appalachian Mountain Advocates, they're called, um, as an expert witness in court. And um, I've also done research on that. And in fact, just last week had a, a new paper published where um, a colleague and I um, evaluated all of the annual reports on mitigation projects that are submitted to the Army Corps of Engineers each year in the Appalachian mining region to determine if those annual reports suggested that these mitigation projects, some of which are these stream creation projects, but some of which are actually restoration projects on degraded streams close to the mountaintop mining site or the, if it's a surface mine, close to the surface mine. And um, we found just shockingly abysmal results. There's really no evidence that these impacts from mining are being mitigated for in terms of loss of stream resources. So it's it's just the sort of side area of research I have that I work both to provide expert testimony on as I review cases for this nonprofit and I do independent science research. So that's that's that story. Okay. Great and and so the you say the the hydrology is completely changed, you know, once the mountaintop has been removed. What's what's the impact farther downstream once the water uh, gets off that impervious mountain, former mountaintop, and starts moving down the streams? What, what's the impact of that? 
so that's a really good question because what happens is when the during the mining process when they use explosives to um, take off the top layer of the mountain in order to get down to the coal that material is pushed into valleys it's called overburden it actually brings to the surface natural minerals um, in the rocks that have not been exposed to water and air for a long time, in some case millions of years. And when that sits in the valley field, that part is relatively unimpacted in terms of, I should say, uh, it is fairly pervious because it was just sort of spilled over into the valley. So when it rains and water runs off the highly impervious flat mountaintop that was mined into, off the side of the mountain into that valley field, which is a lot of loose rock, it then puts into solution, dissolves a lot of those minerals that haven't been brought to the surface in a long time, some of which have been oxidized, and that concentrates in the water that's moving through the valley field, things like manganese, uh, selenium, iron, carbonates, etc. And so when the water comes out at the base of the valley fill, which of course is the beginning of what's left of the stream below what was covered, that sort of toxic um, water moves into the streams below. And it's, it's what we would call a conservative mixture, meaning it's not biologically real reactive. So it doesn't go away. It just keeps being transmitted further and further down the stream. Um, sometimes you get heavy precipitates of these metals on the bottom. So in some of the streams I've been in, you can, after leaf fall, um, and if leaves have been on the, the, um, in the stream for a long time, you can pick them up and almost break them in half because they're covered with these mineral deposits. So it's important to understand that the impacts in reality are not just the buried streams and the immediately degraded ones. It's that the water from these valley fills enters areas that were unimpacted downstream so they could be fully forested but have no organisms in there. So the, um, the extirpation rate of genera and species of stream insects is exceedingly high. Sometimes you lose 90% of the taxa that should be in those streams. Oh, wow. Um, it's huge. And the, if there are fish, they have deformities. Um, so, I mean, it's a very serious problem. And what's been the result of, of your activity? Have you had success in getting better mitigation? Interestingly, mitigation, we have no evidence mitigation's improved. We, we did have tremendous success in slowing down the rate of permits being issued. Um, but we also, you know, I've been very, very thankful that particularly, you know, it began with under Lisa Jackson as EPA administrator, that there became a lot more uh, – the issue of mountaintop mining and the impacts became much more visible. So I think to some extent, potentially, the um, our paper that was published in Science in 2010, my appearance on the Colbert Show, and then there were Senate hearings, helped to raise this to public visibility. And then EPA, who has done fantastic work on this for a long time and understood the impacts, was able to actually get some action and move some new policies in place. So they're really the heroes in all of this. Um, I do feel we've played a small part in it, 
Um, and we certainly, what we're doing now is focusing on um, trying to um, make mining companies comply with um, their pollutant release permits. So, so instead of just going after stopping the permitting of new mines, the nonprofit is actually looking at existing mines, some of which have been reclaimed, that have permits to release pollutants, but they can't do so if the pollutants exceed some limit. And many, many of them have been violating those limits for years and years and years. So I was actually just testifying in a trial last week where a coal company had been um, violating their pollutant releases for a very long time, um, since at least 2004, maybe earlier. And um, so we'll see how that trial comes out. The judge, it usually takes him a couple of months to render a decision, but we had a similar one like this that I testified in in December, and the judge ruled in in the favor of the group that I work with. The science is pretty clear, and that's the role I play, is just to talk about the scientific evidence um, of what's going on in the streams. On your appearance on The Colbert Show, uh, you made a very good point. Are you anti-coal, or are you just shining the light on some of these mining uh, practices that have significant deleterious effects on water quality and, the, and habitat? I'm not at all anti-coal. I mean, I do think we need to move to a more sustainable form of energy production. Coal is not a good path. But this is not something we can do overnight. The issue is more that we shouldn't be doing energy extraction or, or energy development practices that do permanent damage to ecosystems and can't be mitigated for. I mean, the only way you can really solve the problem being created by these valley fills in the Appalachian region we've been focused on is if you can run all the water, somehow capture all the water that comes out of the bottom of a valley fill and run it through a, something like a reverse osmosis system, a water treatment system. That's tremendously expensive, um, and it's not something that the coal companies have been willing to do. Um, but given the magnitude that we're losing these mountains completely, that mitigation is not working, then yes, I, to me, the science says we should not be doing mountaintop mining in this region. So it's really a scientifically based conclusion. It's not something that just necessarily targets coal. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that was that was uh, clear. Um, you know, Dr. Palmer, you've been absolutely fantastic talking with us today about all these uh, fascinating subjects concerning, you know, mountaintop removal, coal mining, and the the really unique center you've put together, the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center. Um, we've just scratched the surface of kind of what you've done. You've you've done research in Alaska. I've been to North Korea on water issues. Uh, but could you tell folks who want to find out more about you and your work where they can go to do that? Sure. Well, we do have a website, my laboratory group, um, and it's pretty easy to get to. It's www.palmerlab.umd.edu, where the UMD is for University of Maryland. And then the center that I run also has a website, and our acronym is SESYNC, which is spelled S-E-S-Y-N-C, and you could just put that into Google, and you'd come right to our website, and you could find out lots of stuff. Okay, terrific. 
Well, uh, Margaret, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Oh, you bet. All right. Bye. Bye. That was my interview with Margaret Palmer. She's really a fascinating lady who's doing some very interesting work. Well, lots of takeaways in this episode, but here are a few. First, I really like the approach to solving environmental problems by incorporating that interdisciplinary multiple perspective approach. Um, I referred to it as a liberal arts type of approach during the interview, and I really believe that this type of approach is going to end up uh, resulting in much more effective solutions to environmental problems. Silos are a big problem in society, and the more we can do to communicate across you know, what are now our silo walls, the more we can take that interdisciplinary approach to, to solving our environmental problems, I think the better off we're going to be, the more efficient we're going to be. Uh, second, I found it interesting to note that a lot of the pollution associated with mountaintop removal coal mining involves naturally occurring elements and compounds that get exposed to air and water and such for the first time in sometimes millions of years. And the result is that the concentrations of those compounds increase dramatically above what naturally occurs, and it ends up doing significant damage to aquatic and riparian habitats. Another takeaway is the ongoing permit violations for some of these mining companies in Appalachia. We all know that permit violations for a variety of environmental laws are going to occur from time to time. You know, the the optimal number of accidents is not zero, as a former economics professor of mine used to say. But the fact that a lot of the violations for some of these mining permits in Appalachia are ongoing and recurring really makes you stop and think how some of these companies can continue to operate in violation of their permits for years on end. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 30. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. Well, as I said at the top of the show, I'll be in Fort Lauderdale in early October for the National Association of Water Companies uh, Water Summit. And I'll be in Houston for the Global Water Intelligence American Water Summit at the end of October. And if you're going to be at those conferences, please email me or tweet at me or do something so that I know you're going to be there. I'd love to meet up with you. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. 
I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.